You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Uh, thanks very much. Um, welcome to everyone here. And thanks very much, Jan and David, for coming along this evening. Um, almost had a walkout before we even came on in true Irish fashion, because uh, David is actually from Glasgow, or rather living in Glasgow, not Edinburgh. But Thank you. <laughs> One and so. <laughs> we managed to save the day. So Jan is from Ballymena in County Antrim and lives in Belfast, as well as being a writer. She works in community arts. Her works include the debut novel, Malcolm Orange Disappears, and the short story collection, Children's Children. Her latest novel, The Fire Starters, is the story of two troubled fathers and their children set against a back- backdrop of the city of Belfast once more going up in flames. Donald Ryan called it spectacular, at once gritty, real, grittily real, sorry, wildly magical and insanely alluring. David Keenan is from Erdree, a town about 20 miles from Glasgow in the west of Scotland. He's the son of a Belfast man, uh, used to play in a band uh, which played support to Oasis the night that they were signed. Um, He also wasted a year, he said, on the worst novel ever written, which he then (laughs) proceeded to destroy with a hammer. (laughs) It was on a laptop, it wasn't a piece of paper. Um, His books include England's Hidden Reverse, a biography of three of his favourite bands. Uh, This is Memorial Device, uh, was his acclaimed debut novel about the post-punk scene in Erdry. And now, For the Good Times, a dark and compelling story, study, of a group of friends from Ardoin who become embroiled in a life of terror and crime. Owen McNamee, reviewing it in the Irish Times, called it visionary fiction, <coughs> occult in intent, brilliant in execution. You take that. Thanks very much. Yeah, well. <laughs> so listen, um, maybe starting with you, Jan, could I ask you first to tell us a little bit about the fire starters? Yeah, um, The Firestarters is kind of a novel in two halves. Um, I guess I get labelled as a magic realist and there is definitely an element of magic realism in it as well, but a lot of it comes from I live in East Belfast and observing really closely the kind of cultures and the symbols associated with loyalist culture there. Um, When you're a magic realist and you see something like a 70-foot bonfire right in the middle of an urban setting, um, I, I never said, as the Belfast Telegraph said a few weeks ago, King Billy is magic. Um, but <laughs> I did think there was something a little bit magical about some. They're, they're otherworldly, they're intriguing, they're a little bit different. So I began to look at things like bonfires, King Billy on his white horse, the Red Hand of Ulster, those giant lambeg drums that I can hear already practicing at night where I live and to play around with what that might look like as as in a magic realist text. So we've got two fathers, um, uh, the most tragic JP in the history of Northern Ireland who's got no friends and accidentally sleeps with a siren. 
um, <laughs> as we all do, um, and is left with a child who may be a siren and may not. And then another father who has a background in the paramilitaries, but has removed himself from that and is horrified to find that his 20-year-old son has got embroiled in paramilitary violence. So essentially, it, it's a magic realist book about giant fires and what to do when your children are a bit out of control. <laughs> David, could I ask you the same question then? Could you tell us about your book? Well, For the Good Times was really inspired by um, uh, my father and his brothers who, who grew up in, in the Ardoin and, and Belfast. And um, my father was illiterate. He couldn't read or write, as, as was most of his brothers. But um, I lived in Glasgow at the time. My, my father had moved to uh, Airdrie, as you mentioned, outside Glasgow. And when uh, the, the, his brothers would come over from Belfast, they would, they would relate these stories as to what was happening in the 70s and 80s in Belfast. And they had such an incredible faith in language, although they were illiterate. And their way of telling a story was uh, performative. They would perform a story completely. And even as a kid, even as a young guy, I thought, one day I will write a book I will write a book about these guys and try to capture their way of storytelling. Because although they had very difficult lives, I began to realize there was something kind of redemptive or, 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 or metaphysic even in, 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 in telling. Mm. There's something metaphysic in the process of telling, which kind of blew me away as a kid. So basically it's a story of four kids growing up in the Ardoin, who get involved in the IRA and sort of get seduced and sort of deranged by the initiatory possibilities of, of violence. Okay. Neither of you are actually from Belfast, or you, you've set your work there. Um, Jan, you're from Balamina, which is in, in one sense just up the road, but actually in, in another sense, like a whole world away, a very different world. And then, David, you're from Erdree, which is west of Scotland. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, um, maybe, you know, the similarities and the differences, like a lot of the same problems that Belfast or the North would have are also prevalent in the west of Scotland, say the sectarian division mm -hmm. and the kind of post-industrial uh, decline, if you like. Um, maybe could I ask both of you what Belfast means to you or to describe your Belfast, given that you're not actually from there, but you have connections? Yeah, I mean, well, I've been living in Belfast for longer than I haven't lived in Belfast, so I'll not say what age I am, but I've got a big birthday coming up next year, and I moved to Belfast when I was 18, so I would call it home now. Um, and I guess, you know, people say a lot when you write a book about a place that it's, you know, a love song to the place. If this is a love song to the place, it's a very screwed up relationship. Um, <laughs> Belfast to me is a place I cannot get away from. It's under my skin and I lived in the States for four years and I wrote a lot about Belfast when I was over there because it, it just gets into you and it can't leave you be. But there are days when you honestly wish somebody would burn it down and start again. Mm. So a lot of us who live there have this frustrating relationship with it. I will say one thing, it has been wonderful. I turned 18 at the same time as the Good Friday Agreement. And that process of watching Belfast begin to recover, and particularly for me, the culture and arts scene beginning to grow and explode, it was lovely to be in at ground zero of that because mm -hmm. every small achievement, every festival, every gallery opening, every actual proper band you'd want to go and hear see coming mm -hmm. to play mm -hmm. Belfast, it felt like a triumph. So I am really glad to have been part of that and been able to watch mm -hmm. it. So that's the bit of Belfast that makes me proud. 
I remember you saying that it was interesting, you know, in East Belfast to sort of see like you would maybe have new kind of um, artists, a bit like say in in Berlin, moving people, artists moving yeah, yeah. into cheaper parts of the city to live. So you were having say maybe artist cooperatives moving into a street with maybe you know a loyalist mural at the end of it, and that kind of culture clash, um, whatever, and and uh, the fascinating potential of that, and also maybe the sense that. You know, East Belfast is changing. Like you know, um, yeah, yeah. Naomi Long was elected as an MP there, and she's an alliance uh, kind of cross-community um, politician rather than previously the the DUP who had been there before. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you if you want an example of that, go home and Google a thing called the Vault, which is a old technical college that's been sitting empty for a long time. There's 82 artists in residence there at the minute. Mm -hmm. And it's right at the end of the street is Freedom Corner, which is the big row of, of paramilitary murals with the EVF murals up. So they're like from here to where the fire exit sign is. And I that is something that makes me excited. That's what progress mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. coming fast enough, but it, there are these little windows where it is happening. Thank you. Uh, David, what about for yourself then? Did you visit, like, I know you, you had family coming over from Belfast. Did you ever go in the opposite direction? Like, did you have kind of first-hand experience? We weren't allowed to visit in the 70s mm. and the 80s at all. It was only in the 90s mm. where we began visiting Belfast. So I think partly because of that, it became a sort of mythical place where this incredible, these incredible archetypal situations were playing out, but literally with members of my own family. Mm. And I remember that one of the first times I visited Belfast was in the 1990s, and this was a, an experience which really underlined how surreal and how in Belfast, I'm always interested in sort of uh, liminal zones and one-off zones where different rules apply, where reality itself is up for grabs. Belfast has always seemed like that to me. And in the 1990s, we visited Belfast with my mum and dad. And uh, <clears throat> my mum and I were huge fans of Doctor Who. And, um, and this was a big inspiration of my book. There was actually a comic shop at the time and they had a model of K-9, which was Doctor Who's dog in the window of the comic shop. And my mum was like, oh my God, there's a, there's a model of K-9, we should buy that. And as we tried to go into the comic shop, the guy said, I'm sorry, I'm closing up for the night. Be and we were like, well, we want to buy that key. And he was like, well, I'm sorry, my wife has been kidnapped by the IRA and I need to go and uh, give them some ransom money. <laughs> and my mum just said, okay, well, what time are you opening in the morning? <laughs> and, and he was like, oh, 10 o'clock as usual. <laughs> and we're like, cool, see you then. And it was only once we were on the ferry with K9 in the back seat, we thought to ourselves, what the actual fuck? Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Your wife's getting kidnapped. We're like, what time are you open in the morning? Oh, 10 o'clock as usual. And I began to realise, fucking hell, once you get out of the sort of vortex of, of Northern Ireland, or the vortex of Belfast more particularly, oh. and it doesn't have your grip on you, you see how crazy it is. But when you're in it, you're kind of playing the game, you know? And that kind of blew my mind. I realised this is such a fertile place for uh, literature to write, a, to write an awful sitting there, mm -hmm. you know? What about um, the kind of... Did you come with your own baggage, though, given that the west of Scotland, you know, has a lot of those same issues? Well, I mean, I had a very contradictory uh, upbringing. My, my dad was a Catholic from, from the Ardoyne um, <coughs> and a staunch Republican, as was the rest of his family, whereas my mother was a Scottish Protestant. Mm. And I went to a non-denominational school. A non-denominational school in Scotland means that they're twirling the batons and they're singing the fucking Billy Boys mm. and stuff like that as well. So I, was, I grew up with an absolute hatred of that because I was around it so much and it seems, you know. Um, so I think that was a 
big influence on me in terms of sort of pulling that apart a little bit and, uh, and sort of working on these different identities, the thing my father came from mm. and the things that I grew up with. And the west of Scotland was, was sort of a, a zone that was infected by Northern Ireland in a mm. way. And I think some of my writing is about pulling that apart a little mm -hmm, bit. Mm -hmm. So in actual fact, you were kind of straddling the, both communities or, or the two traditions. Absolutely, in, in and, and um, um, I have to say, when the, the combination of my mother's family, which was very dour uh, Scottish Protestant, mm. and my father's family, which was wild uh, Irish Catholics, I loved the Irish Catholic side so much more. It was so much more fun. Mm. You know what I mean? It was kind of exciting, and I can compare the funerals on my mother's side which were fucking tragic and mm. terrible and weeping mm. and no fun. And the funerals of my dad died, which was like the fucking best party ever. Mm. And I always remember my mum in the kitchen on her own as all my dad's brothers are telling the worst jokes of all time, coming through and saying, you're all having too much fun. <laughs> and that totally summed up the difference, you know mm. what I mean? Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Jan, how about you then? Because you are from that Dura um, Presbyterian <laughs> tradition that yeah, has just yeah. been so shamelessly disparaged. We um, like a bottle of slur hmm. in my family. <laughs> what, what was your um, experience growing up then um, as a Protestant or a Presbyterian in the North? Um, very, very different. Like I think what, what has become abundantly clear since talking about this book is that there's a perception that I'm writing about my community. Um, a lot of people, most writers I have, have talked to who've written a book from the kind of Catholic perspective are writing from within their community and it, it usually seems to be a kind of roughly nationalist perspective. Um, I grew up um, really tight Presbyterian, which for us meant we were largely apolitical. Mm -hmm. So no drinking, no dancing um, and no voting either. Wow. Um, no politics in our family. Um, my mother's side of things are actually brethren, which is very, very concerned. There's a few people nodding, they know what that is. Mm. Um, so I had these symbols, I was surrounded by them. I lived in Ballymena. Ballymena in the 80s was Paisley Central. Um, and I had to battle through some of the same things that David's talking about because the symbols to me were quite threatening and quite, mm. quite difficult. And probably even more so than the symbols of kind of nationalism because I felt that these were being perceived to represent me and I didn't think they were because they didn't really symbolise anything. So a big part of me moving to East Belfast was kind of becoming okay with my Protestantism. That sounds really weird and wanky, but um, I did a, worked on a documentary last year with some Germans and we had to go out round the 12th and chat to people. And I realised it was the first time since I was six that I had actually actively gone to a 12th parade. And it needed to be done because I needed to chat to people and hear some of their completely legit reasons for no. why this was an important cultural thing mm -hmm. to them. And then also talk to some people who were absolute idiots and shouldn't be let anywhere near a drum. <laughs> um, so I, I needed to get that perspective before I could really dive into this. It's interesting though because like quite often people conflate um, the religion and the kind of the p political tradition if you like because Protestantism per se is about you know about faith in God or whatever a particular mm -hmm. um, you know theology 
and I think you actually studied theology. Yeah, and got a master's I, in theology. I think it's sort of striking because I remember I was talking to um, an Irish academic down here who was interested in kind of uh, the Catholic writers, the, say, the French tradition of Bernanos and Mauriac and so forth, and he was sort of scouting around, sketching around for suggestions about um, Catholic writers in Ireland, and frankly, you know, are there any? I, I, I couldn't name one mm. current. You know, we're living almost in a kind of a post-Catholic yeah. uh, culture, whereas here you are, a living, breathing, um, practicing Christian. I'm just wondering, does that in, inform your uh, your writing at all? Like one of your influences is Marilyn Robinson, yeah. who is I think, from a Presbyterian tradition as well in the States and writes with her religious themes and also Graham Greene, Flannery O'Connor, yeah, you mentioned Yeah, I as mean, well. it's weird, like most of the big writers that influenced me growing up were the Catholic writers, so <laughs> Flannery absolutely saved my life. She's Saint Flannery to me. <laughs> yeah, um, and Graham Greene as well. And um, even some of the, the not quite as obvious ones. Um, yeah, I think it's there in the back of my head all of the time. And it's, it's something like someone asked me recently you know, when I interviewed, do you believe in God? And I was like, yes, I do. And I think I'm going to be spending the rest of my life working out what that looks like <laughs> and what it means. And it's always been the mystery that appealed to me. And Flannery's letters are called Mysteries, Mystery and Manners. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just it. That's been me my mm -hmm. whole life. Mm -hmm. Presbyterianism didn't work for me because it was reducing this mystery down to doctrine yeah. and mm -hmm. points. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's probably why I fell in love with magic realism, because you open up something like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and the mystery's there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's no easy answers. But also um, the magic realism somehow has its roots in, in the sort of the, the allegories and the myths oh, and so yeah. forth. That has biblical roots as well, and the language, the richness yeah, like, I mean, of I, the language. I always say, and it scared the shit out of me, but my first two years of going to church um, and sitting through it, I was seven and eight, and we did a two-year sermon series on the book of Revelation, and I'm 90% sure I wouldn't be a magic realist if I hadn't <laughs> sat through that. Because um, when you have to look, listen to, you know, the interpretation of the mark of the beast and things every week, your mm. wee heads, <laughs> I'm over here making stuff up. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. It probably wasn't the healthiest thing to do to a seven-year-old, but... That's probably why I'm writing this stuff. Yeah, a good basis. Yeah. And David, you too, perhaps you're a less likely looking um, um, faith-based writer, but um, you're compared somewhere to Iris Murdoch. Um. Oh, I think of myself as, I think of myself as a religious writer. I'm amazed. I didn't even know that about you at all, um, Jan, which is quite amazing to me because I also write in terms of, um, well, my, my understanding of, of a religious uh, attitude is, is uh, the, the aspects of faith and awe. Mm. And I write with faith and I write with awe. And one of the things I wanted to do before the good times was it's a non-judgmental account. I wanted to write about the awe that the human experience is, no matter whether it's on a suffering, mm -hmm. whether it's violent, whether you're even the perpetrators of violence. And I think almost like the religious aspect is to write on the side of the killers as much mm -hmm. as on the side of the killed. And that was a big thing for me in this book. And also, at the end of the book, I wanted them to come to a revelation where they were able to say yes to their situation, no matter what, and have kind of awe that what happened. I, I'm, I'm very into, I, I wouldn't describe myself per se as a Christian. Do I believe in God or the idea of God? That's a complex thing to get into, but I would say yes, essentially mm -hmm. I do also. 
absolutely. And culturally and tribally, I come from a Christian area. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's, that's, that's kind of informed by kind of um, my understanding of it. But the point of the book is when they, 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 they come to be able to say yes, to be able to, even in the difficulties, they come to be able to say yes to their own existence and somehow affirm it. And I think that's the point of religious revelation where you realize that you're experiencing. That's what I mean by faith. I don't think faith, um, I don't have belief, I always say, because I think beliefs are always going to be trumped by reality. Mm -hmm. If you believe in something and reality is something different, then your belief is kind of like has been trumped. But I think faith is beyond belief. I think faith is just like, yes, whatever happens is right. I do not impose any ideology on it in the first place. And at the end of this book, the, every, all the people come and say, well, you know what? We play the roles perfectly. And there's a great quote by the mythologist Joseph Campbell, which I love so much. Um, and he says something like, um, you know, you may not have the best seats in the house, but you have to admit, what a fucking show. <laughs> I love that idea. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your, your next book because it has a huge uh, religious theme. Well, the next book is called Monument Maker. It's a huge, it's like quarter of a million words. It's, it is a monument in itself. Um, and it's kind of about, well, one of the big things that fascinates me is memory and how do we memorialize? You know, my first book was called This Is Memorial Device. It's called For The Good Times. My next one's called Monument Maker. And it's how do we fix how do we fix monuments? How do we, how do, how do we remember? How do we uh, celebrate this passing kind of moment? So my next book, Monument Maker, is kind of set in the great cathedral area of France. And it's about an architect. And it's about how do we uh, fix the numinous? And stone, stone is the metaphor. Because that's why we have gra gravestones or stones. Because stones kind of stand for the eternal life in some kind of way. So I've kind of anal I, I fell in love with Romanesque sculpture and I fell in love with the great cathedrals because these incredible monuments to the sort of majesty of existence but fixed in stone became a great thing for me. And also, um, all my books talk about one of the fascinations I have is, is it possible to understand the sort of um, significance of the moment when you're in it? Kind of, is, is, is it only posthumously that we can bestow meaning? There's this great song by Prince called Sometimes It Snows in April. And he says, sometimes I wish that life was never ending, but all good things they say never last. Mm. And love just isn't love until it's past. And I'm like, but is it possible? Could we live in the moment and see the significance of it? I don't know if it is, but all my books are attempts mm. to do that. And mm. everyone in my books are attempting to try and affirm the moment and live in the significance of now. In a way, it's an amoral way as well, but which I think is closer to a religious way. I don't believe religion is about morality or rules. I believe religion is about awe, the absolute majesty of existence. And I don't think religion is in any way in conflict with science. Because I think science uh, keeps offering us uh, uh, ways of being more in awe with what the fuck is happening. You're like, well, we're, people say, and scientific people say we're, we're only atoms or we're just chemicals. And science is a way of reducing things. But I think what religion does is they have a way of turning that on its head and saying, just atoms, only chemicals. You know what, mate? If, if fucking dead stones can generate consciousness so that they love dead stones, Sign me up. 
You know, I'm no, ready. Yeah. I'm, I, I feel all. I'm ready mm. for the all. You know. For sure. I remember reading recently somebody sort of saying or sending a link to somebody who had lost a loved one or whatever. A link from a physicist who sort of said that matter is never lost. It is always preserved in the universe in some shape or form. So the atoms or whatever of your loved one are still still there and there is comfort to be had from that. And that is a, a crossover between science and faith. Totally, even just in terms of energy. Well, the, 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 the sum quota of energy from the universe is never diminished. And so one of the things I want to do with my books is to, I, I believe the books are like organisms. So I think the energy that comes, the energy goes into the books and the books have the equal energy of the life or the body or the planet or the star. So books are alive, just like people are alive. Music, <laughs> changing the subject slightly. <laughs> For the good that times. That was a nice segue huh? A nice there. segue there, yeah. It's really Seam Seamless, <laughs> seamless, I think. Um, for the good times, I remember reading, uh, reading over the weekend that when you were a teenager, um, that was a, a song by Perry Como that reduced you to tears, which you wouldn't necessarily think looking at you today. And I know you too, Jan, are like, uh, Bob Dylan um, was um, a big influence on you and... Um, Not personally, hmm? like, but... <laughs> yeah. But I'd say some of the song titles yeah. and so forth, yeah. yeah. Um, is, like, maybe just talk about the, the possibilities of, of art in general or maybe do, does music feed into um, your imagination in some, in some way as a writer? Yeah, I think... Um, so I did my Master's, um, a really silly, big, long two-year exploration of Bob Dylan and... Um, the Gospel of Mark about linguistics of wow. linguistics of um, kind of persuasive rhetoric. Wow. Um, no, I have yet to make any money off that dissertation or be employed <laughs> to do anything. But it was a really good fun two years. The book offers will roll in any oh, time. Any second, now, <laughs> people will be looking for that. Um, but and it, it did. I think it, it was problematic for me. It was eight years ago, and it, um, this is really sad. But I stopped listening to music nope. afterwards. Um, just I, I feel like I went on in t too close mm. and too analytic to it, and I lost that. And yet something has been replaced in that. Like I, I'm very, very keen in writing to think about how a sentence performs, not just in terms of its meaning, but also in terms of its lyricality and its mm -hmm. flow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think music for me was replaced by poetry, and that, um, it's awfully wanky to say most of my friends are poets. It sounds like you're admitting something awful, but they are. <laughs> and <coughs> I spend a lot of time listening to poetry, and what I have learned from the poets is how, how a sentence sounds and nothing will come, nothing will go to print from me until it's been read aloud and it, mm -hmm. it flows. And I think probably the background in music and studying it so intently, and I mean, Dylan is a master of the syllable. Mm -hmm. Some of those sentences do not work. You know, there are far too many syllables, but he stretched and he reduced and he made it fit into the music. And I love that. You mentioned poetry there. I think, was there some Samuel Beckett festival in, in a skill where Emma McBride was speaking about something along the lines of poetry was too good to be left to the poets. I was at that, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, she also said at that in that reading, I don't know why I should have to explain myself in my work. If there's something people don't understand, that's what Google is for. Um, yeah. And I put that in my back pocket as well. Quite to right too. Before would that leave literary festivals like this? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, 
Sorry, David, back to you then on uh, the, the influence of, of music. Is it just that one song? Obviously, it's not. No, the, music, the influence of music is huge on me in terms of one of the most important things in my book. I'm always about how do you transmit energy? How do you transmit energy? It's one of my absolute obsessions. And one of the ways you do it is you do it rhythm. Rhythm is absolutely key. Mm. And so one of the things, like in my first book, there was like... Uh, probably like a hundred different characters or something like that. And I began to develop separate, the way I, I began to understand their voices was yeah. to understand their rhythm. And not just how they spoke, how they moved, how they walked down the street, all these things. And I got it from music. And one of the things I like is, um, um, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not like a sort of like a Hemingway writer where the, where the words are always stripped down, but it's, I, I believe in being poetic, but I like a sort of rapturous transparency. I don't like to trap up. I like you to be able to move through cons without trapping over a single sentence. And in a way, you talked about Dylan. Dylan's a huge influence mm -hmm. for me. The unfolding of these incredible phrasings. And also Leonard Cohen, the way they would do these phrases and turn the meaning of a word slightly. So yeah, music was absolutely key to me. In fact, my other, I've got two new novels coming out. My other, my next, my other novel that I haven't talked about actually has uh, chords, guitar chords at certain points. Because I got to the point where I thought, I, I want a book that's possible to, you can engage and accompany it somehow musically. Mm. So my next one actually has chords in certain sections when it gets a little rapturous, so you can accompany it yourself. Tell me about the Perry Como song itself then. Like, why do you think it has such a powerful effect on you? Well, in so many, I mean, I, I, mean, I think I know, Perry Como is the voice I know better, best outside of my family, friends and lovers. I grew up with Perry Como. My dad was a pre-rock and roll guy. No idea about rock and roll whatsoever, but loved Como so much. And Como was like a strange, dissonant mirror for my father's family because my father, were, they were Republicans. They were tough guys. Um, they were very uh, male, very, ma very, very macho, loving at the same time, not cliched. But... Um, Como was a dissonant mirror because they would always boast about Como. They would be like, Como never swore. You know, Como never drank. Como was always faithful to his wife. And I'm like, yeah, exactly what you weren't in so many ways. But yeah, it was this distant mirror. They absolutely admired him so much. So I grew up with them. And one of the things I love about For the Good Times is, um, and one of the things I get into in the book, you can see on the front, and that actually is my father on the, on the, the, the far side of the, the picture here. You can this see is the resemblance. In the Ardoyan yeah. 60s, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, in a way, um, the whole Como thing was they're sort of dressed up like that. But in a way, it's alter egos. And so in the book, they become superheroes at one point, you know? And the Como was an alter ego. And in a way, to survive at a war zone, which in the, in the 1970s in the Ardoin, you were surviving a war zone, no doubt about it. You had to sort of develop an alter ego. And For the Good Times is an incredible song because For the Good Times is also about pretending and, and taking on a different stance. It's a love affair that's over. And the beautiful line is, make believe you love me one more time for the good times. And it's also a weird dissonance. I mean, how can there be good times in the Ardoin in the 1970s? Mm -hmm. But yet there were. Mm -hmm. And when my family would talk about it, they wouldn't talk about it like, oh my God, it's a fucking nightmare. We can't escape. They, were, they would be boasting. They'd be telling you about these incredible things that happened. And who knew if they were real or not? Because they were assuming their own alter egos and their own personas. But then I began to realize how storytelling itself is redemptive. Storytelling is what redeems. You know, and I think about redeeming, you know, when you get a bottle of ginger and you hand it in and you get 10 pence back. 
That's kind of what I mean. You hand in your life and you get something back by telling the story. And I think that's why I go back to mean the telling itself. There's something metaphysical about there's, telling. There's also something we, we Will Ives up with us in Belfast a few weeks ago and he said this thing that has just been in my head ever since, that memory is not static. And in terms of, you know, both, you know, we, we both go out of here and have a drink tonight or whatever, and you'll have a different idea of how it was than I will. So the memory of the event is not static. But also your memory and your perception of it changes as time progresses. So, you know, you watch your parents having an argument when you're a kid, and you will not understand that properly until you're an adult in an adult relationship. Yes. And your experience there helps you interpret the memory. Well, that's a great point as to why Como made, meant more to me. Because when I was a kid, I'd be like, fucking Perry Como, it's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. I want to listen to Lou Reed and the Ramones. But I think I was too young to understand the sort of elemental, archetypal situations that Como sang about. Yeah. You know, he's got a song, It's Impossible. Uh, I use that as one of the quotes in front of my book. It says, can the ocean keep from rushing to the shore? It's just impossible. You know, if I had you, could I ever love you more? It's just impossible. To me, it's like, I'm like, what the fuck? I've never been in a relationship for 20 years or been married or dealt with all these things. But then I realised coma was elemental. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, say, they use the word easy, easy listening. But I would transfer that and say elemental listening. Yeah. Como does not do, um, Como's not an interpreter. His songs are like the Ur versions. Mm -hmm. He doesn't interpret them. He sets them down like the fucking Rosetta Stone and everyone takes them from there. <laughs> And they're archetypal situations, and you're so right, Jan, because as we get older, maybe we understand that as kids we weren't involved in these situations. Well, I used to, my dad used to listen to Sunday morning coming down in the car, mm -hmm. and I used to think it was about somebody who didn't get to Sunday school on time. <laughs> um, now I realise that that isn't what they were talking about. <laughs> So, yeah, your, your interpretation of all of those things, I think, changes. And even, you know, you think about all the things that you watched and were exposed to as a kid. And even, I mean, there's been so much great writing about the Ardoin recently. And, you know, people like Paul McVeigh writing about it from a child's perspective, sure. where you're like, the child has one perspective of what, you know, the troubles was. And it's not until he gets much older that he begins to really understand the nuances of what he's seen and what he's been exposed to. Well, it's very interesting because my first book called This Is Memorial Device um, has 26 chapters and it's all different characters talking about the same situation, but they're all misremembered mm. or they all have different accounts. But then I got into more of a metaphysical idea and I began to think um, that, that letters themselves want to create meaning. Mm. That, 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 uh, there's 26 chapters, so there's one for each letter yeah. of the alphabet. So letters are lonely. And letters want to create meaning. And words are letters copulating. So if you allow letters to copulate in words because they long to copulate because they're lonely, they give birth to meaning. Yeah. And they give birth to meaning in a different way according to what words you use. So I really got into that idea that even letters themselves are dreaming of meaning and are lonely and want to be united in words to make love and birth meaning. <laughs> Kind of a nice idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say that, like, yeah, Q is probably quite a lonely letter. Q? Uh, One of the loneliest. Yeah. yeah. And the end of the alphabet, when it trails off, Aye. there's some very lonely. But, like, I always thought that S and T quite liked to be together. <laughs> well, my, actually, my new, no, my new novella is, is called Extabeth. And it's not a word that exists. And I think it's an angelic presence where certain letters that I've never copulated before are finally making love. You should have made space for Q in there, then. 
There's one called, I can't remember, it's Kubila or Kubiksta, but she's one of Extabethi's, like, the hierarchy of angels. Yeah. She's slightly but lower. It's Q, it's Q, I always think, it always has to be paired with you. It never gets anywhere else. What about QST? That would be Quist. Yeah, sorry, Martin. <laughs> I'm fascinated here. Yeah. It's letters, Talk sorry, away. it's letters making love. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful image, beautiful image. <laughs> I've completely lost the run of myself now. <laughs> um, I was going to say, um, you mentioned there Paul McVeigh's The Good Son, mm -hmm. um, also set in Ardoin, and Milkman. obviously Milkman by mm -hmm. um, Anna Burns, which won the Booker Prize. So it, it, there really does seem to be... Um, writing from the north of Ireland, um, having a moment. And I was kind of thinking, well, hold on a minute, there have always been books about the Troubles, like Nothing Happens in Carmen Cross by Bendit Kiley, uh, Resurrection Man about the Shankill Butchers by yeah. Owen McNamee, Cal by Bernard McLaverty, and also a lot of his short stories. But then I thought, well, actually, that's over the span of maybe 30 years, mm -hmm. whereas in the last two years, um, we have the, the two books in front of us tonight. Last year, we had Anna Burns, but also Country um, yeah. by Michael Hughes. Right. There is suddenly, um, definitely, um, a, a coming together of, of ideas or imaginations. And I wonder, why do you think that is? Is it because you know, there is a distance now that the kind of paramilitaries are off the stage and a generation has passed and now it's the artist's turn to interpret? Or is it, is it just a coincidence? Um, it is the number one question I get asked at mm. the minute and I have lots and lots of different answers. The very cynical answer is, as you said, that there's always been great writing in the north of Ireland and it suddenly just suits the, the press in the rest of the UK and Europe and Ireland to shine a spotlight on us because you know, we can write commissions about things like Brexit and borders at the minute. That mm. is the very cynical Jan saying that. Mm. Um, I don't think that's entirely true. I do think there is a wealth of really good writing coming up, but I would question the word suddenly. I think it's been a germination process in mm. that there's been an incredible amount of investment from the you know more established writers building community. Um, mm -hmm. Things starting up again, like you know the Tangerine, we have this fantastic literary journal. Mm -hmm. It's great to see new journals and new presses starting in the north. There are spaces to read. Like you know, if you go back 30 odd years, there really weren't that many spaces to mm -hmm. go and read your mm -hmm. work. And or theatres. Yeah. I remember doing a pub quiz in the north, and one of the questions was, "What's the only town with a theatre or something like that?" And I think he got. Yeah, I mean, but that was actually true. And, oh, and some of I think it, it was in a skill. it's not it's not quite there yet. Like I really really love no alibis, but we should be in a space where a city of Belfast size has a number of independent bookshops, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. a couple kind of thing. Um, to, you know, there's a lot of growth to be done still, um, but it, it's an exciting space. And I also think there's this thing that, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier, where the weight of what you have to write about seems to have lifted. Mm -hmm. So it has been really encouraging in the last wee while, particularly with younger poets coming up. They're not writing about the troubles. Mm -hmm. Most of them were born and don't remember much of it. They're writing about gender and class and sexuality and contemporary politics and all of the things that other young mm -hmm. writers mm -hmm. are writing about around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also there's a freedom for, you know, 
some of us, if we're being really honest, 30 years ago, the things that are being written about Northern Ireland now might have got you in trouble. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. And that, you know, let's not disregard that, that the fear thing mm -hmm. has lifted and people can say things honestly mm -hmm. again and let's hope it stays like that. For sure, like Resurrection Man by Owen McNamee, I know that provoked a lot of yeah. um, antagonism and, and grief. Um, and there was what do you call the prey, right, that was run out of his house? Um, yeah, that was more recently. Yeah. Um, Gar or Gary Mitchell. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there is still that fear of yeah. you write, particularly if you write critically, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you know. Telling tales. Yeah. Yeah. Or challenging myths or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like maybe as an example, like why now for you then, rather than. A well, few years ago. I was old enough to write it. I yeah. mean, to be honest with you, as a kid, I always knew there was two books I wanted to write. My first book was about Airdrie because it was a shitty Scottish town mm. and I had the most magical romantic time there and I wanted to turn that idea in its head that it was impossible to have these incredible romantic experiences in shitty working class towns. Mm -hmm. I wanted to turn it on its head, especially I think a lot of Scottish literature, Scottish cult literature is slightly reveling in that sort of like heroin junkie or like rough kind of mystique and I wanted to like flip that. And so I always knew I would want to write this book because when I was around my father and his brothers, I loved their, 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 um, their magical belief in language. But I also think, yeah, I think it's true what you said. I think maybe there, there's, there's enough time passed that now we're able to do it. It's not as raw, mm -hmm. perhaps. But I still think there's intimidation. I still think it's an intimidate, you are intimidated when you attempt to write something about the troubles and there's a lot of rules. And one of the rules I've realised and um, I've, had a pretty, I've had a pretty easy ride with it, I have to be honest, mm. um, because I, was, I, I never thought twice when I was writing it, but when it came out, I suddenly thought, oh, fuck, I've written a book about the troubles. This is probably not a good move. You know what I mean? But um, one of the things that I did find <coughs> out is people demand broad strokes. They demand cliches. Mm. And if you don't adhere to cliches, they get angry. And one of the weird things is, both me and uh, Jan both have a character called Sammy. And... I remember people who hadn't even read my book, who read the blurb, were like, well, he's going to need to do a little bit of more fucking research mm. if he thinks there's a Republican called Sammy coming from the Ardoin. <laughs> and I'm like, well, my uncle was called Sammy, who was a Republican from mm. the fucking Ardoin. You know what I mean? Yeah. But people want these really broad strokes, and mm -hmm. if you move slightly from it or get more complicated, it becomes difficult. So there still is a level of intimidation, yeah, I yeah, believe, yeah. about writing about these things. No, it is almost a sense that, you know, like sort of people expect things to be just sort of so, but the fact is that, you know, life is complicated. Like you mentioned there yeah. in the green, we're talking like, you know, the Shankle Butcher, the leader was called Lenny Murphy. Lenny Murphy, Murphy being Catholic the most name. Catholic name you can imagine, ah. or John Hume, a Catholic politician having a Scottish Presbyterian name. Yep. Martin McGuinness having the Scottish version of McGuinness. Mm -hmm. Ken McGuinness, the unionist, mm -hmm. having... Uh, the more Irish clan McGuinness mm -hmm. name. It is very, very difficult when you leave Northern Ireland as well. Like, um, I, I find every time I go outside of, of Northern Ireland, there are there's a kind of baseline understanding of what happened in Northern Ireland, and there's none of the nuance around mm -hmm. it. So, you know, every time I go to to England, I have to start by explaining what a unionist is, and what the twelfth is. That's not as much crack as it sounds, yeah, having yeah, to explain yeah. unionism <laughs> over and over again. Um, so there, there is, you know, they've maybe seen a couple of movies. They've seen an episode of two of Derry Girls, or mm -hmm, and there's mm -hmm. uh, the 
enough understanding to be dangerous sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, and that I wouldn't call it discrimination, or it's definitely not threatening, but it, it's another barrier to getting yes. the Northern Ireland story out there. Yes. Have you found that as well, David? Oh, absolutely, totally. There is, a, there is so many barriers. And also people immediately demand your qualifications. Yeah. Mm. Well, what's your qualification? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What, which frustrates me because you know what my qualification is? I'm a fucking writer. Mm. I'm you not a working class writer. I'm not mm. a Belfast writer. I'm not a Glaswegian writer. Mm. I'm a fucking writer. Mm. This is what we do. Mm. And what we do is we write about people in other situations and we, we apply empathy and we put ourselves in those people's positions. And I think one of the positions we're in right now is a very dangerous position where identity politics has got to the point where unless you have lived that, you have no right to write about it, which is fucking crazy. Because isn't that what art's about? If we cannot put ourselves in the positions of other people, how the fuck can we ever have empathy with any of our situations, you know? So when people demand my qualifications, I don't even feel like bringing up the fact that my dad was in the Ardoin. My qualification is I'm a fucking writer. Mm. End the story, you know? I wonder, is that where, like, I think you've said um, that magic realism actually helps because it has a kind of a distancing yeah. effect. Some people can be very sort of, you know, feel sort of threatened if you're sort of writing about them or, their, or um, about a community, whereas if you go into, if you sort of tell a story in a more allegorical yeah, or magic really realism funny. way. So yeah. the first people who read the book, none of them had any problems with sirens coming up the wagon, but somebody had a big problem with the fact that there was no porta cabin out the back of um, one of the, the community centres that I mentioned in East Belfast. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, there's a really lovely, did anyone go to see the Ursula K. Le Guin documentary this afternoon? Wasn't it fab? Um, Ursula Kyla Gwynzolt said this really interesting thing years ago. People are uncomfortable with their fiction being too fictive. <laughs> so you get this all the time. You write a book about Northern Ireland. Oh, is that about your dad's experience? You write a book about someone who has dementia. Was oh, that based on your granny's experience with dementia? Mm. No, I just made it up. Mm. Um, they, even with high fiction, they like you to be able to relate it to some life experience that you've had. Mm -hmm. Whereas magic realism is just like, it's so mad and mm -hmm. it's so out there yeah. that it allows you to just go the whole hog and go, mm -hmm. oh. I mean, the funny thing about this is the, the book actually came from, I was given a talk in Washington DC about um, Northern Ireland. And I had read a section from a story I have about um, fat ladies being sedated and, and uh, strapped to tables and shook till they lose weight, which is magic realist in my hope. <laughs> um, but you have patented it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was a version of it happened in Ballymena in the 80s, but um, you can ask my mother about that if you want. Um, after, just after that, I um, told a story and talked about these 70-foot bonfires and somebody in the audience was like, oh, so that's magic realism too. And I said, no, no, the bonfires <laughs> yeah, are real. Right. The mm. fat ladies mm. aren't. Um, and that's where the thing clicked with me that you could, there was a, a messy in-between place there that mm -hmm. could be exploited. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think one of the interesting things about a lot of the books that are happening now as well, in a way that I think fiction 
I mean, it sounds like a crazy can see, but I, I believe it's true that I, I, some, I think fiction can get closer to the psychic reality of what those times felt like more than any straight documentary mm. telling can. And of course, in the background of For the Good Times, we are the death of Bobby Sands on Hunger Strike and all these things. But I wanted somehow more to get away from the big sort of mythic historical moments and get down to the what it's what it felt like, what it fit, what it actually felt like. You know, because a, a, a dry academic telling, people do not enter it any situation like that. Everyone, when you're in a situation right now, you're reading the room constantly, you're feeling other people, you're imagining these things. And again, this is why Belfast is so ripe. It felt so crazy that perhaps even the laws of physics mm. were up for grabs mm -hmm. at some point, mm -hmm. you know? And one of the things that's been amazing to me, I always say, I don't do research. Research gets in the way of uh, inventing. But I, when I finish a book, I read a lot about my subject. And one of the things we were talking about this earlier on, Jan, is that um, reality outstrips fiction. Even when you think you've had the most out... And I invented a lot of absolutely baroque, violent situations here, completely just riffed on them. And then you read something like, you know, like an account of the Shankill Butchers, and you realise... Your fiction doesn't even get close. Yeah. Reality always outstrips fiction. But I at least think that sort of we, we're, we both get termed magical realist. I'm not sure mm -hmm. exactly if we're coming from that tradition in, in terms of that, but I understand what we're talking about. And I think magical realist fiction is closer to reality than social realist fiction mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. kind of way. Mm -hmm. Stuff. I've just realised I got far too carried away with all this question, all these chats and languages or letters making love. I haven't actually asked you to read from your work. So sorry, Jan, would you like to uh, read a passage, please? Yeah, I'm going to bounce off what David was talking there about kind of ambiguity and story um, and read a wee, wee bit from the start of the book, which is kind of about ambiguity and language, because in, in Northern Ireland, there's never one version of the story. There's always how this person saw it, and then how this person saw it. This is Belfast. This is not Belfast. Better to avoid calling anything a spade in this city. Better to avoid names and places, dates and second names. In this city, names are like points on a map or words worked in ink. They are trying too hard to pass for the truth. In this city, truth is a circle from one side and a square from the other. It is possible to go blind staring at the shape of it. Even now, 16 years after the Troubles, it is much safer to stand back and say with conviction, well, it all looks the same to me. The Troubles are over now. They told us so in the newspapers and on the television. Here, we are very great with religion. We need to believe everything for ourselves. We're all about sticking the finger in and having a good hook around. We didn't believe it in the newspapers or on the television. We didn't believe it in our bones. After so many years of sitting one way, our spines had set. We will take centuries to unfold. The troubles have only just begun, and this is hardly true either. It depends on who you're talking to, how they're standing, and which particular day you've chosen for the chat. Those who are ignorant of our situation can look it up on Wikipedia and find there a 3,000-word overview. Further articles can be read online and in academic journals. Alternatively, a kind of history may be acquired from talking to the locals. Piecing this together will be a painstaking process similar to forging one jigsaw puzzle from two, or perhaps 20. 
The troubles is too less a word for all of this. It is a word for minor inconveniences such as overdrawn bank accounts, slow punctures, a woman's time of the month. It is not a violent word. Surely we have earned ourselves a violent word, something as blunt and brittle as apartheid. Instead, we have a word like scissors, which can only be said in the plural. The troubles is, was, one monster thing. The troubles is, are, many individual evils caught up together. Other similar words include trousers and pliers. <laughs> so good. The Troubles is always written with a capital T as if it were an event, as the Battle of Hastings is an event with a fixed beginning and end, a point on the calendar year. History will no doubt prove it is actually a verb, an action that can be done to people over and over again, like stealing. And so we draw on O-lines. We say this is not Belfast, but rather a city similar to Belfast, with two sides and a muck brown river soldering one to the other. Roads, other roads, train tracks, chimneys, all those things common to a functional city are present here in limited measure. Shopping centres, schools, parks, and the unspoken possibility of green acres glimmering in the spring. Three hospitals, a zoo, from which animals occasionally escape. To the east of the city, a pair of yellow cranes stride across the horizon like bow-legged gentlemen. To the west, a hill, hardly a mountain by alpine standards, trips over itself as it tumbles into the bay. Strung along the coastline, there are very many buildings. They are perched like coy bathers, dipping their toes in the crany sea. There are boats, big boats, smaller boats, and that sunken boat which holds the whole city captive from the ocean floor. There are no future boats. Instead, there are glass and gunmetal structures stapled across the skyline. These are like stairs ascending towards the tooth-white heights once occupied by God. These are office blocks and hotels for visiting strangers, Americans mostly, and other people from earnest places. We have scant respect for these people and the photographs they will take. They believe themselves brave for coming to this city, or at the very least, open-minded. We wish to say to them, are you mad? Why have you come here? Do you not know there are other proper cities just an hour away by budget airline? There's even Dublin. We are not supposed to say this. We've already begun to lean on their money. <laughs> love it. That one, there are no future boats. I fucking love that one. There are no future boats. So good. Now, this is going to sound a bit like a read-off, but... Um, read-off. <laughs> <laughs> David, would you like to yeah, respond? Um, okay, I'm going to read from... Um, this is like, I'm going to stand up. I just like, like to do it when I'm reading. Um, this is kind of like when I was talking about this sort of performative aspect of storytelling mm. that I kind of got from my dad and my dad's family. It's, a, it's somewhere between a text and a song and a poem and this kind of stuff. So this is a section where um, uh, these kids are on the run in the IRA. They end up in London and they end up with this guy called The Swan who's running some kind of secret covert cell uh, uh, inner order uh, of the IRA in uh, London. He's called the Swan, so I'll read you this. Swan's mate for life. Do you realize that, son? That's how the Swan gets his name. The eyes of a Swan are inscrutable. This is what this cunt I'm playing pool with says to me. Inscrutable. 
Couldn't name a blackie. Must have been six foot two. The eyes of a swan, he says to me, are as black as hell's gates. The swan's partner was killed in action. That's all he says to me. None of the specifics. But he's been faithful ever since, he says. By this point, the swan is half blocked and has his arm around Tommy and is singing in his ear. I catch a line of it. An old Irish folk song about a widowed swan looking back across its life and recalling the still faraway locks that it had sailed over with its long lost partner. The great flowing rivers that were a part of them and that had delivered them to the future. The green Irish fields down there beneath the two of them. Are there swans in Belfast? Blackie says to me. Everything feels like it is in code. Being a swan. A swan in Belfast. The swan is on his feet now. I dreamt I was a swan, he's singing, floating on the tide, his long ago partner and himself. Past long abandoned mansions, like up on the Malone Road, all overgrown with trees and misty wet with rain, and with thick vines hanging down. And there is another sort of bird living in this song. A bird that moves to greet the swans. All in this song where they have been expected for such a long time. And they are led along a path in the shadow of tall fir trees. I mean, isn't that a pity? Isn't that a shame? Of course it's tragic. Of course it is strange. Because we're swans, he sings. To the whole room now. And what do swans need with a mansion? With a house, with a butler? and a maid and the swans are led into a library a library all piled high with books and the swans look around and in every shelf they see there is everything they could have dreamt of reading stories of all their friends as they were grown up the memories of their parents as little birds themselves birds themselves birds themselves they descended down the scale Poems by their brothers and sisters, bird poems, poems by Yonkers, accounts of the uprising of their grandfathers, the rising up of old swans, and the things that happened in the moment of them. The moment of them, moment of them. Shakes his head as he declaims. And the swans, this pair, they turn to each other, these beautiful black eyed birds. And it's like a joke to them. A terrible, sad joke that they were born swans and had no way of making sense of any of it. For swans cannot read, I says to my lover. And this is the swan singing now. And my lover looks back at me with those eyes of his, those eyes of his as he sings. And my lover, he asks me whether one day when he passes, Maybe he could be turned into a book. But I won't be able to read it. My lover, my long lost. I won't be able to read you, my dear. It's how sings the swan in return. Back in the flat in Kentish town, Tommy's chest rising and falling, the side of his face, in the light of cigarettes next to me, 
on the floor in the dark. I'm imagining this landing in water together and how it is soft between our legs, 1977, and how we sail off silent and without a thought. Thank you. That's great. Thank you both. Follow that. Unfortunately, it's one of you who has to follow that um, because it's now time for questions from the audience. Um, would you like to raise your hand and somebody will come to you with a mic? On the yeah, front man, here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, I, mean, I can just project. I can hear you. <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, I, I'm actually in Ireland because my mom is from Belfast, so this is actually really interesting for me. Uh, is there a book that anyone would recommend? Like, I read um, A Place Apart by Joseph Matthews. Is there anything that helps? Like, what's a good account of Belfast? Fucking <laughs> 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 <Talking> hell. <laughs> Present company accepted. Goodness, it's, it's, actually, it's really, really hard to say one book because you'll just get one perspective on it. You nearly, really need to go and read a lot. What I would advise is just go in, go, go to Belfast and go into No Alibis and grab David and say, can you sell me five books that summarise Belfast? And I will push the blame onto him because you, you really need to read a bit of poetry as well and you probably read, need to read some theatre. And... Um, there's no definitive history book. Like it's really Jonathan Barden wrote yeah. a history of Belfast. Um, yeah, like it's a good idea. Oh, to do you know it. what is really good? Mm. Have you ever said? Do you know the Belfast Almanac? No. So I think it's out of print now. I have a copy that I found in Oxfam, and it it was a black black stuff did it years ago, and it's a huge book, and it's a collection of writers from centuries who've written about Belfast up, and it finishes just about Good Friday. Okay. So there are different sections like on industry, on um, relationships, on politics, on, and it's the most beautiful book. If you can track down a copy of that, it's called The Belfast Almanac. Cheers. Anyone else? This one. Hi. It's, I suppose it's a related question um, particularly for Jan, but responding to something that David said about writing about Airdrie and writing about somewhere that people thought wouldn't be especially romantic or exciting, but formed the basis of um, of a early work. Yeah. And in relation to that, I mean, Belfast is so imaginatively inhabited and fiction has done a lot there already. Mm. Is there any part of you that wants to write about Ballymena, for instance, or it's about... It's funny you should say that. Yeah. But to kind of try and bring fiction uh, into those parts of the North that maybe have been less written about yeah. and explored. And I know that in part you're doing that in your book um, with writing about East Belfast or writing about mm. you know, kind of Protestant Belfast um, to some extent. But yeah, I mean, is it, are those other parts of, of the North yeah. a space for fiction for you? I mean, the second question that I get asked the most at the minute is 
a kind of version of is there less writing about the Protestant experience within Northern mm. Ireland than the Catholic experience? And you have to be very careful how you answer that. And I, what the way I usually answer it, it is, there's quite a bit of writing about the Protestant experience, but it tends to be usually quite working class, quite urban, um, and quite political writing. Um, and what is missing from the canon is writing about what happens in all of the other bits where Protestant culture maybe doesn't look the same as it looks in Derry or Belfast. And it's what I grew up with and it's why, you know, in school I would we would we read all the Irish writers, but I never saw anything that looked anything like my experience of a very dour Protestant funeral. <laughs> um, with Schler instead of wine and all of the trimmings. Um, so the, the next book that I have written, which is both a novel and a linked short story collection, is set in a fictionalised Protestant village in North Antrim in 1993. Um, the I'll, I'll let you know a lot about the book if I tell you the village is called Ballylack. Um, and it explores all the different versions of Protestantism because there's over a hundred different denominations of Protestantism in the North. Mm. And they can be as liberal and as conservative in all different directions. So um, it's obviously going to be an enormous bestseller, okay. a magic realistic story <laughs> of rural Presbyterianism. Um, but I will say I tried to write this book about seven years ago. Um, it also had an element of Bob Dylan in it at that stage. And it came out really, really angry and bitter. And I didn't want to write it then. And it has now come out balanced, I think with grace, which for me, grace is a huge thing when you write about mm. the place that you're from. So I'm really proud of it. It makes me cry every time I, I read it. So hopefully it will make other Dur Presbyterians oh. cry as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just say, I don't know if people are aware, there's a new press. Um, it's actually an, an Irish guy, his name's Doyle, no relation. And um, he's based in London, but he's set up a press called Turnpike Books. Yeah. And they, uh, are bringing out, they brought actually a new book out by Morris Leach, but um, who I think is from the, the Protestant yeah, tradition. Yeah, Morris is. But um, they're also kind of reviving a lot of very interesting Ian work. Ian Cochran. Dan Ian Cochran, um, but also Janet McNeil, who I know, um, I think you're a fan of. Big fan, Janet, but also, has anyone heard of Ian Cochran? So that's F is for Ferg. Yeah. F is for Ferg, track it down. Um, he lived at, at the, you've heard of it, yeah. Mm. It's a bit mad, but if I tell you that he has a book called Jesus on a Stick, and he was writing in like early 1980s Ballymena, mm. um, he really was pushing the boundaries <laughs> back then, and his work is really interesting. So it's great that Turnpike's yeah. reissued. So I think it. there is a sense that you know, like, of of kind of recovery, just in the way that say a lot of female writers um, are being rediscovered um, by people like Sinead Gleeson and so forth in the south. Um, in the north, Turnpike books are are doing a lot of salvage work or whatever, um, and in terms of that kind of rural Protestant one, I think it's Sam called Cullybaggy Gothic. Cullybaggy Gothic, okay. Yeah. Um, like Sam Hannah Bell, I would say um, yeah, yeah. sort of answers like December Bride yeah. um, is very much rural and and Protestant and whatever is, you know, it's a it's a great book made into a great film as well. Um, but so there are bits and pieces out there, but maybe. Um, um, not as much as, as there might be. I told, I told Martin when I was coming out, the reason that you wear big earrings when you do these things is to clip your mic on. Um, so the next time you see him, he has big earrings on. 
Um, was there somebody... was, was your man up the back there? Did you have something? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is actually for you, David. Um, more about memorial device. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your descriptive writing about music. I know we touched on music earlier, but I found it very unusual. A lot of music writing would be quite sort of journalistic and based on lyrics and cultural context and so on, whereas yours is very rich. I wonder if you could maybe talk about that a bit, please. Yeah, I was never into like cultural commentary whatsoever. It was never something that interested me on any level. I never, I never regarded myself. I, I, uh, I wrote like uh, music journalism for like 25 years. I, I wrote a fanzine when I was a kid, and I was I wrote for Enemy and Melody Maker and Uncut and Mojo and whatever. Um, but my whole thing that I tried to develop a language that was not it was not a sort of criticism of the music, but that was a sort of equal to the experience of the music. And I was very influenced by stuff like science fiction. Because I always thought science fiction was a way of describing something, this alien presence that comes into your life and transforms it completely. And for me, that was like listening to Lou Reed in the Velvet Underground. So I wanted to sort of mint a language that... I read Lester Bangs. Lester Bangs, is, is, he had a compilation of his writing called Psychotic Reactions. And Carburetor Dung is still one of my top ten books of all time. And um, the thing I loved about Lester was that he... He, I liked reading his review of the Velvets as much as I liked listening to the Velvets. It didn't seem like a criticism or an analysis of it, it seemed it's equal. And I began trying to develop this language, and I think for anyone who's writing novels, when music writing is a great sort of uh, academy, because you need to develop a sort of aspect of almost like synesthesia. You know, where you like, you know, you smell colors or you see sounds and things like that. And psychedelia was massive for me in terms of that because it's a confusion of the senses. So I was always very much into, you know, I think if critical, if you take things apart, you kind of kill it. So you take a scalpel to it, you take it apart and it's kind of dead. I was never a fan of the sort of school of, you know, your Simon Reynolds, which always seemed to me like a guy standing at the side of a dance floor with his trousers buttoned and his tucked in shirt, taking notes while everyone else was getting down. I always wanted to be getting down, and I wanted the writing to be the getting down, rather than a report on the getting down. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So when I wrote Memorial Device, and I wrote the sort of imagistic or, or sensual aspects about the sound, I wanted it to be a sensual experience. I didn't want to break it down into what it was doing culturally, I just wanted you to feel the kind of music. So that was vital for me, and I think that was my school, the rock journalism school, and I still do think that in terms of the 20th century, rock journalism um, was a sort of a refuge, almost like a refuge in genre, where people were free to experiment in a way which wasn't really happening elsewhere in literature. And for me, it was the greatest skill. It was massive for me. And, and for me, where I'm always interested in where the vernacular intersects with modernism. And for me, rock criticism was one of the places that happened. And another place that happened was the Irish joke. For the good times, is full of Irish jokes. And for me, Irish jokes are where mo the modernism of Joyce and Beckett intersects with the vernacular on the street and the play with syntax and the faith and language to sort of redeem our stories. So all these things came together for me in terms of that. Fantastic. I don't think we're going to top that one. Is there anyone <laughs> else? Yeah. I, um, I just wanted to ask you both, what was like the last book either of you read, like recently, or that comes into your mind that really just fucked your mind, you know, just 
change your perspective? Um, either of you or both of you? Um, I, I have to say, um, I read it an awful lot. So um, I read like about a book a day at the minute. That, wow. Um, the last thing that complete, and it's not a, it's not one thing, but um, Will Eaves, who won the Welcome Prize there mm. a few weeks ago, is literally the most underrated writer in Britain at the minute. Everything, just read, just read everything, like Murmur, Will Eaves. Um, Murmur. The start with the Absent Therapist, um, which is a collection of I don't even know what you would call it. They're like like slightly linked short snippets of things. Um, Murmur is his reimagining of um, Alan Turing's chemical castration. Um, oh, and cheery as that sounds, it's <laughs> a phenomenal piece of writing, and everything that Will's ever written is just wonderful. I've read it all now. So, um, Will E A V E S. Um, there'll be a run on him tomorrow. <laughs> Bob will be going go by them from Gutter, so Bob's really happy. Um, my favourite book of the past 18 months is a book by Belfast writer called Wendy Erskine uh, called Sweet Home. It's a series of short stories that completely blew my mind in terms of the, the, the energy, the, the vernacular language and just a grasp of the sort of surrealism of everyday life in Belfast. Um, yeah, that's been my favourite uh, contemporary book I've read in a long time. Martin, do you want to answer that? I want to um, hear what yeah, you Yeah, well, um, the last one I've read uh, was The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, mm. um, which isn't out yet, but it's out, I think, in July. And I read The Underground Railroad, which won the Pulitzer by him last year, I think. Um, and both brilliant. Mm -hmm. So, like, he's a writer, I think he's got seven books out, so I'd happily read the rest now. Um, I thought that was great. Um, McCarran, um, I absolutely love. He's described as a new Le Carre. He's very witty and brilliantly plotted. And um, I think, you know, he's excellent. Like, he started off as a poet. And even though he's writing spy thrillers, uh, he writes like um, a poet. The language is superb. There's two. Good. All right, guys. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, okay, make this the last one, I think. Uh, okay, uh, I'm Northern Irish, but the first time I went to Belfast, about 15 years ago, I saw a city that really uh, impressed me because it was divided. Uh, the guy in the side, the, the boss was telling us that there is the Catholic neighborhood, there is the Protestant neighborhood, and the only thing I could see is poverty. Mm -hmm. I went to Belfast again just before the Brexit referendum, and I could see a city that was built like rebuilding, mm -hmm. like building up trust and people were integrated and everything. I went to Belfast again last year after the Brexit referendum and the only thing I could see <laughs> and feel is again that kind of building on trust, a, I don't know, this kind of this. You live there and you have father there. The, my question is, what is the future? How do young people see the future over there? Brexit will happen anyway. There are people really want to get involved and to go to the troubles again. People want to go away from that. People want to build up something completely different. What is your, uh, your experience, your aspiration? What you are expecting for that? Mm. 
Is there a question? Thank you. Um, well done for getting to this point and nobody said the B word. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sneaking it in at the end. Um, I, I th it's a massive question and I don't have yeah. an answer for it, but I do think my own personal belief is that we cannot move that much far further forward until they seriously look at integrating the school system. We're still sitting with 89% of our children in segregated education. Mm. Um, and if, if you get to 16, 17, and you haven't formed formative relationships with mm. people who see the world differently from you, the damage is quite hard to undo at that point. So if I was in Stormont and I was actually doing my job, mm. um, I would be working very hard to push integrated education through. And it, it's a cry and shame. There's lots of kids and families that want their children to be in educa integrated education, but there aren't the places for them. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And I also would be protecting the arts. The arts have created in Northern Ireland a liminal in-between space to do all the good stuff that, that David was talking about, where you can practice empathy and seeing another person's perspective. And, you know, you can say the troubles are over, but until it's actually a felt, lived experience, they're not over. Mm. Um, and the arts creates a space where that happens, and those are two things that are not getting funded very well in the North mm. at the minute. So um, we can all go and write to Stormont about that, but as no one will read the letters, it would be pointless. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that's very true. Sorry to put in, but just in that th the way that the arts can sort of do stuff, can bring people places that maybe, you know, politics can't. For example, I published a piece last week by a former RUC man who had written um, a, a novel about the troubles from the perspective of a police officer, mm -hmm. which had actually originally been published by David Trimble, of all people, um, 20 years ago. And it was brought to my attention by Danny Morrison, mm -hmm. who contacted me on Twitter to say, former Sinn Féin publicity director, to say, this, this guy has written a book and it's, you know, it's worth promoting or highlighting. So as a consequence, I've I, I published that. And, you know, whereas if it was political or whatever, like say, they'd be much more likely to be mm -hmm. sort of, you know, um, at odds with each other in terms of, say, the, the message getting across. But because it's fiction and there's a sort of a, a respect for the right of everyone to sort of tell their story. I remember, Jan, you were sort of wondering like what sort of reaction as a as a northern protestant whatever you might get um south of the border or whatever mm -hmm. whereas i think you know the arts is seen as a kind of a safe space where anything goes or where it's a space where you know people lit genuinely want to hear stories of the other side they want to learn they're open in a way that maybe um political debate isn't um so i would second what you said Okay, folks, uh, listen, thank you very much for, for coming. Uh, I'd like to thank Jan and David for uh, the generosity of their time and their insights. Um, thank you very much.